0: one log won't burn, so you got to have everybody else to work (laughs) off of. My song
1: came on the radio, and an arm reached in and turned off the radio as soon as it came (laughs) on.
0: Hello, everybody. You have found your way to fill in the blanks, and this is a special day for me, and I'm just going to let you guys listen in. You know, I didn't come to television and Hollywood and all of that until I was 50 years old, and there's an interesting thing that happens when you're that late to the game, and that is you spent your life watching people, listening to people that you've really come to admire, and then you have the opportunity to meet some of these people and get to sit down and talk to some of these people. This is one of those days when I get to sit down and talk to and meet someone that I have admired for so many years for multiple reasons that I'll talk about in a minute. I'm talking about none other than Lyle Lovett. and He is a singer, songwriter, actor, producer. You all know who he is, so I don't need to say all that much about that. My dad used to say the longer the introduction, the less you've done, so I don't need to say anything other than Lyle Lovett But he's a private guy, Texan, down by Houston. The thing that's really interested me about Lyle is the lyrics he writes. It's truly raw, truly from the heart. Sometimes fun, sometimes smart-ass, but always meaningful. And he just has a really unique, different approach to things. Four Grammys, 17 nominations, and then a lot of television and movies. So Lyle, it's great to sit down with you.
1: Dr. Phil, you are so kind to have me on. I'm thrilled, thrilled to meet you like this, uh, even through the through the air like this.
0: Now you're down in Texas, right? You're still living down in Klein or nearby. Yes, sir. Right,
1: right in in what was always called the Klein community, which is now I, I joke that I grew up in the country and now I live in the city, but I haven't moved. How does that work? <laughs> well, Houston, Houston has grown out to us, you know.
0: Yeah, it has. What
1: used to be a rural German farming community. Uh, is now the the suburbs of Houston, and uh, with gosh, I don't even know how many people live out here in this area now. When I was when I went to Klein High School, it, Klein High School was the only high school in the school district, and my class was the biggest class up to that point. Class of seventy five, we had four hundred eighteen graduates, and now there are five high schools, and no telling how many in each graduating class. Oh, but nice. it's, the area has really grown, and and I I still live on what was my grandfather's farm place. And I feel, you know, so so lucky to be able to do that.
0: Now you've got some real roots down there because you didn't just happen on to Klein. In fact, Klein is named after is it your great grandfather? Well my mother w- was a Klein.
1: And so uh, that's that's my maternal family. Okay. And and my grandfather's grandfather, my great great grandfather was the first Klein to to come here, he left Germany. Uh, he left Stuttgart in Germany in 1848, uh, and and as so many people did in those days, and he he arrived here uh, in 1850, 1851, depending on who you who you ask. And and uh, he he the story goes would go into Houston and pick up mail for folks, and they'd come over to his his place to pick up their mail, and so they started referring to the area as Klein. It's still an unincorporated part of North Harris County. Uh, So, so it's, it's not a city, but it was always called the Klein community. And thanks to the school district taking on the name Klein, uh, you know, our family name will,
0: will continue in the area. Yeah. So you're truly a country boy and you live in an area that's named after your family. So that's some roots, man. I'm telling you.
1: Well, I, I tell you, I grew up around my extended family. My, my mom was a, was one of seven children and my grandfather was a vegetable farmer his whole life. And, and uh, his, his sons carried on the farm uh, in different ways. Uh, my two uncles turned it into a dairy. And one of my other uncles was a, uh, a produce dealer and helped, helped the local farmers get their produce to the old uh, farmer's market uh, uh, on Airline Drive. And, and um, so I grew up in a farming, farming atmosphere. And, and part-time work was easy to come by because there's always plenty to do. I, I was a helper in the dairy barn several summers growing up. And that's, I tell you that, that, that makes you appreciate doing something for a living, like, you know, just making stuff up and playing and singing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which is something you didn't get into right away. There's so many things people don't know about you, but you're an Aggie, right? You went to A&M. Yes, sir. And then you went to graduate school. You studied abroad in Germany.
1: Well, going to Texas A&M was really the first time I'd been away from home and uh, I, I I was uh, young for my class. Always I was I started. My mom sent me to our our church's uh, parochial school, which she had gone to. My grandfather had gone to uh, our church congregation, Trinity Lutheran Church, is uh, almost 150 years old. And and uh, so I got to go to, to that school and start first grade when I was five. Uh, so I started college when I was 17. Uh, it was my first time away from home, and and it was just a uh, Texas A&M was a great place to go because, uh, because of its values system and, and because it was a, a smooth 71 miles from my parents' <laughs> yeah. house. And it was an e- so it was an easy – in those days, it was an hour and 15 minutes home. I, if I'd gone to the University of Houston, it would have probably taken me longer to get across town to go to U of H. You know?
0: Absolutely, because of the traffic, no doubt about exactly. it. Right. Now, as I've gotten to know you over the years and followed you, I've seen some things that were real parallels to my upbringing and interest, because I grew up in Texas and Oklahoma, and I was really into motorcycles, getting my first one when I was 13 years old, and I raced motocross and all kinds of things for many, many years, and you did exactly the same thing, right? You started out running motocross, and you're still doing some of that, right?
1: Well, you know, I, I still am occasionally. It's kind of the most fun you can have, I I think, getting getting to ride a bike like that. When when some of my buddies in in grade school, I think I must have been sixth or seventh grade. Some of the older, the upperclassmen there at Trinity started started riding their mopeds to school and started bringing a, a Honda brochure with them to school. You know, we all just memorized every crease and corner of the pages of those of those brochures. And and uh, I started I started bugging my my folks for a, a mini bike of some sort, which they were, you know, dead set against. And and uh, but as as time went on and I was able to wear them down, uh, my dad started telling me stories about how when he'd come home from the Navy on leave, his brother had a Harley and how much he enjoyed riding that. And we'd go down to Galveston on the weekends occasionally, and Dad would rent one of those uh, little Honda uh, S fifties or S sixty fives, And, and uh, ri- we'd ride up and down the beach. He'd put me on the back. We'd ride up and down the beach. So I knew he was he liked he liked motorcycles, and and so they let me save up some of my yard mowing money, and then they threw in some too uh, to buy a nineteen sixty nine Honda Mini Trail, the Z fifty, the little at first little oh, Honda yeah. Mini Trail and uh, i was hooked uh, luckily my mom had a first cousin my cousin sonia klein uh, was married to a, a motocrosser uh, and and we would go to the races to watch him race and and sonia had her own woods bike and and then her husband Monty, had had uh, race bikes and as we went and watched them we just thought what a what a nice family activity it would be so after just a a couple of months of my having that first mini trail uh mom and dad and i each had a bike and we'd go up to the sam houston national forest uh, where my dad's family was is from originally and we would ride and ride and ride so it, it became what we did in my high school years as a family and uh, it was sometimes the race days on sundays were a little difficult we get up and go to early service and then head off to the races or we'd go to the wednesday night service and then head off to the to the to the races early on Sunday, but but um, we would we would uh, it was it was what we did two or three weekends a month, and we always did it together. And those are some of my fondest memories, really, of 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 family in in those days.
0: It's a great way to spend time together. You had a Husqvarna one hundred and twenty-five, right? I sure did. What what kind of bike did you ride? Well, when I first started out, I was running a trail bike. I had a. You didn't see a lot of them, but I had a Bull Seis Dias racer. Oh, sure. And, uh, you know, it was so low geared, you could ride it up a telephone pole. <laughs> and uh, I love that enduro bike. I rode that a lot. And then I got into the 750 Suzuki's and all because I was so big, I had to have a lot of power. And all the time I raced, I never won a race. I won some heats, but I never won an all-out race because... All these guys next to me were like jockeys. They're 125 pounds, and I'm over there 225. And only time I'd ever get a chance is when everybody would crash in the first turn. And <laughs> it'd be like three of us left, and I'd just outlast them. But it was a lot of fun. It, it's so much fun. So the, your
1: Boltago shifted on the right, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's – see, I, I, was, I never rode a right shifter. That, and every time I'd get on one, it just would – Yeah, it was from change. Spain, and it
0: was very different. And It had the enduro kit on the tank there, and – Fix a flat and everything had straps on it in case you had to put it on your back and carry it up a hill. (laughs) It was a really interesting bike. Did you, did you, now was that in Oklahoma or was that in Texas? Both. I rode it in Texas and Oklahoma and in Kansas some. I really loved it. My first bike I got, I was 13 and I got a Yamaha 250 Catalina Supersport. At the time, you could get a license for a motorcycle if it was five horsepower or less when you were 14. Uh-huh. And I talked my dad into getting me this one. It was like 40 horsepower, and I was only 13. <laughs> and uh, I had it about three months, and let a friend ride it, and he hit a Buick, and <laughs> he survived. He came through it okay, but that was the end of that. I spent two years paying for it, even though I only had it for three months. That was part of my lesson in life. Well, gosh, uh,
1: there there are you you learn a lot of those riding a riding a motorcycle. But...
0: Yes, you do. Maybe 18 months ago, I was riding a dirt bike in my driveway and I was doing a wheelie up the driveway and I came down and somebody had put a palm tree there that wasn't there a few minutes earlier and over the handlebars I went broke seven ribs and blew up my shoulder and Robin hid the keys to that to my Harley to everything I think they're buried in the yard somewhere so they're now set decoration.
1: If you need me to bring up my metal detector at any point, just let Listen, me know. Listen,
0: I think I should just ship you the motorcycles because I don't think she would let me ride it again ever. It was a bad scene, but it was so interesting to hear that you rode and still do. It's such great fun. Well,
1: it was, it was, uh, it, it really was. I was just couldn't think of anything else in those years. And, and I was already playing guitar and taking music lessons, but, but I, I loved racing and, and made friends in those days. Uh, that are that are you know still friendships today and and some of my closest friends are people that we'd park next to every week at the races
0: you know? oh yeah and you take it on the tour bus sometimes right well i have i have taken a truck with with
1: having you know, having some bikes in it but I, my I, my dad's rule growing up was ne- never ride on the street so we didn't do that and uh, and then when i went to when i started school in 1975 at texas a&m I, 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 broke my collarbone coincidentally in the front yard, not too unlike your driveway story. I mean, it's, you know, all that racing that you do and you you're fine. And then you do something silly in your own, in your own yard. And, and, uh, so that discouraged me from riding for a little while. And then I just didn't, didn't do it for 20 years. And, yeah. and picked it back up 20 years later.
0: Why are we crashing in our own yards? let wish we had these great stories about going over a big hill at a racetrack and all of that and instead of crashing our yard. What the hell? You can't put that kind of stuff in your book, can you? No, it's, it's just not very superhero-like. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank
1: of America can help. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multilayered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth. But when we find it, it can change our world.
0: We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. So you didn't get serious about music until you were in your 20s, right?
1: Well, it was for as long as I've played guitar, I should play much better than I do. I my my second grade teacher uh, was married to a, a, a gentleman that had been in the, that was in the music store business uh, forever, from one of the old families out in our area. His name was Charles Wensche, W U E N S C H E, and and uh, I came home from school one day, and my mom said, "What would you think about taking guitar lessons?" Mister Wensche teaches guitar lessons, and I said, well, that'd be fun." And that was about it. I mean, there was no no forethought. I, I, so I they bought me a little starter guitar, and Mister Winchey ta- taught me a few chords. And then he stopped giving giving lessons. And and my mom set me up with a with a, a music teacher in downtown Houston, close to where she worked. My my parents both worked for the old Humble company, Met working for the old Humble company, which became Exxon. Right. And and uh, they were my mom was there for forty years, my dad for thirty seven. But uh, but once a week she would drive, she'd she'd get off work at at 445, fight the traffic all the way out. We're 28 miles north, northwest of downtown. She'd fight the traffic, pick me up, take me back in for a seven or eight o'clock in the evening music lesson while my dad worked late on those nights. And uh, I'd have my guitar lesson. And then we'd all three go home and stop off at our favorite Mexican food restaurant every it was uh, their lessons were on Monday nights for years at first and then Thursday nights after that. And and so that was something that was something we always did, too. One of the things about my my parents both working in the same place and 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 because of the com- the commute in those days in Houston was about the same as it is now with, with fewer people. But, you know, the roads were much smaller and not as many. Uh, my parents rode to work and back home from work together every day. And so that could oh, be wow. up to an hour and a half each way. So they uh, they even though they didn't work together at the, at the office, they spent lots of time together every day. And that's that's something I think back on as as a, what would be a lovely part of a
0: relationship.
1: And, oh, and we of course. we just always did things together, you know.
0: Yeah, that's great. To spend that time together. That's great. Now, when you started playing, did you know it was a passion right away? I, I didn't know. I, I enjoyed it.
1: I enjoyed it. And, and uh, nobody at my little, I, my, the little Lutheran school I went to, Trinity Lutheran, uh, there, were, there were 10 of us in my first grade class, and we grew to uh, a class of 12 by the time I was in the eighth, eighth grade. In my first grade class, there were two girls and eight boys. One, one of the girls was my first cousin. Uh, and and Wanda, surname and, and uh, the other the other girls' last name was Klein, but was no relation. But so even even that sort of made made the idea of you know dating impossible. Yeah. Somebody that might be related. So so uh, it, it was a very small school. No nobody else even had a guitar. So I I, I felt sort of uh, you know uh, singled out just because I had a guitar, and right. and we get to play occasionally in school. Uh, nothing complicated, but but uh, I would I would be asked to play occasionally for school functions, and that was a a big boost to me in those days.
0: Well, it's so interesting that it really you got traction in the 70s, and along the way picked up degrees in journalism and German. So it wasn't like you were laying around uh, watching the grass grow. What was it that finally triggered you to start writing and? actually making this a career choice instead of journalism or something else? Why this?
1: The, the uh, it, it, you know, it was, I knew by the time I was in school and, and playing out, I, you know, I got my first paid gigs when I was 18 in the summer of 76 with a high school buddy of mine, Bruce Lyon is his name. And and uh, Bruce was, was a motocrosser as well. So we had lots in common and, and he had his, he's a year older than I. And he would he he got his driver's license a year before I did, and so he and I would go into Houston to H and H Music in those days, and and uh, take take guitar lessons. Uh, we we worked up some songs in the summer of, of 1976, and got a couple of local gigs and restaurants, a, a place called the Mariner on FM 1960, because mm-hmm. they're regular bar bar singer guitar player uh, entertainment wanted a couple of nights off that summer to to spend more time with his with his children so we played on Tuesdays and Saturdays and I I just loved it I just loved doing it and when I went back to school I just kept trying to play uh it, so it, it was then that I I realized how much I enjoyed doing it I never thought that it was a realistic thing to aspire to to be able to do it for a living I mean we made we made fifty dollars a night at the Mariner and that was that was huge. You know, my, my parents sent me to school, so I didn't have to worry about paying for my tuition or my rent, uh, and, uh, any money that I made playing, I could save up and put back into buying new equipment or saving right. up for a new guitar and, you know, making my sound system better. So I, I did just that and just kept, kept playing, uh, after that everywhere I could.
0: Yeah. And you actually got connected with Nancy Griffin, right? Well, it was it was. uh, Nancy Griffith was was a big
1: help to me. There's a there's a place in Houston that still exists, uh, opened in the late '60s by by Marvin Anderson and Gray Fair, called Anderson Fair Retail Restaurant, and even today it holds just jam packed about 75 people, but it's it is a uh, an original music listening room, and and uh, it had. A serious reputation by the, by the time I was playing out in the late 70s, uh, it was a well-known place and known as the kind of place that if you go, you're going to hear a serious singer songwriter. And the people who are there will be truly listening uh, to, the, to the point that I, I, I'd seen the owners uh, 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 who were Roger Ruffcorn and Tim Leatherwood at that time would I, I'd seen him come up to people at a table and say, you know you're you're in the wrong place, and give them their money back if they were if they were talking and carrying on as you really? would expect. You bet. Yeah, you know, they would just discreetly say, you know, you, you folks came to the wrong place, and 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 uh, and folks would leave. It was it was so quiet when you played there, you could hear a pen drop. Uh, Nancy Griffith and and her uh, and, and her boyfriend at the time, uh, who would become her husband, Eric Taylor, were both. Instrumental in introducing me to to Anderson Fair, and and uh, a- Nancy had come up to Texas A and M to to, uh, to play the coffee house at Texas A and M, and I did a an advance story on her for the Battalion, Texas A and M's daily paper, and oh, yeah. uh, which was which was really fun for me to get to do those kinds of stories, and and so I interviewed her and and uh, ran the story, and then the the coffee house asked me to open for her as well. And so I, that's how I met Nancy and she invited me to come down to Anderson Fair and, and sit in, do a guest set with with uh, Eric Taylor at his next performance, which got me in the door there. And, and wow. so I, st- I was able to start playing my own songs at that point. You, you asked me earlier how I came to, to, to want to write songs. And it was uh, it really was a feeling of not being able to play someone else's song adequately. I, I, I thought to myself, you know, I need to make up my own songs. If, if, if there's going to be a reason people want to listen to me, it, it has to be not for my voice necessarily or my, or the way I play guitar, but for my point of view. So I, I started making up songs really to, to just to, to show my take on things. And, and I, I felt like that was the strongest thing I had to offer
0: and you do have a unique point of view you've said people don't want to hear how well things are going so you kind of write about you know pain conflict whatever what led you down that path because you do write about as someone trained in psychology you cut to the chase about relationships and life and things like that in your songs and i think that's what people relate to so much i was just curious how you landed on that particular way of writing songs that particular point of view well that's that, <laughs> you have to be careful what you say
1: in interviews over the years don't you that they yeah. the, really my my approach to songwriting isn't really an, an approach i mean it's I, I feel lucky to to make up anything that holds together from the from the first line to the last line and, and sounds halfway decent uh, it, it, uh you know i really uh in 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 writing a song i I rarely think about uh, the audience or who the song might reach. It really is, is a, it's really just sort of self therapy, uh, writing, writing a song. So, so I've, I've always felt free enough, free, free, free in the sense that if you write something you really don't like, nobody ever has to hear it. That's, that's one thing you can absolutely, absolutely guarantee, but I've, I've felt free enough to, to write about things that I've actually gone through and to, to write about, you know, write, write from, uh, from real life experiences, not, not necessarily trying to create experiences. And I, some, some, some songs start, have more truth in them than others. Some songs start off with a kernel of truth and spin into some fantastical story. But, but uh, some of my songs are, 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 you know, not so much written as they are just written down from from things that have happened
0: yeah do you know when you've written something that is going to be a hit can you tell does it feel right to you can you tell one from another
1: thank you for saying the word hit uh, but you know I've, i in in a way you know i've 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 never had a hit and and uh and that's uh, i've had some songs that have made it on the charts and and uh and i have a few songs that people seem to ask for every time i play uh, but th- what's important to me is just to have a song that feels good to me the first time I play it in front of people. i'm I'm not looking for necessarily how the audience reacts, but i'm I'm looking for how how the if I feel self-conscious playing a song in front of you, then then I have to reevaluate that song. but But if I feel confident playing a song in front of you, then I then I feel pretty solid about
0: it. Right. Well, you're very humble the way you describe all of that, but, you know, you've got four Grammys, 17 nominations, you've been on the country charts, you've been on the billboard charts, I mean, you've had a lot of hits, uh, a lot of songs that have done, just look back decade after decade, you just seem to keep turning up, and on both charts and you'd gravitate away from country, then you'd come back and win those fans back again and then gravitate away. Just You just do what you want to do. And people seem to find you.
1: You know, I, I have always been lucky to work with folks in the music business who who've given me a free hand creatively and, and supported sort of, uh, you know, how I wanted to, to, the kinds of songs I wanted to record. And, and that's, that's, that's unusual really. And, and part of it is, and I, and I appreciate you're saying that I'm, so grateful for the career I've had, but, but if you're, you know, if you have, if you have a big hit, for example, you know, you can get you can kind of paint yourself into a corner. Uh, pe- people might want to hear something that, you know, do us another version of that song and have, let's have another big hit with it. You know, you, you can, you could be subjected to that kind of expectation or that kind of pressure. And, and I've worked with folks that, that, uh, have helped me to do what I want to do. And that that's a, uh, that's a wonderful feeling. My, my first three records were released from the Nashville part of MCA Records. Tony Brown was the head of a at MCA, who signed me uh, uh, to MCA there through Curb Records in Nashville. And after three years, they moved my deal in 1990 out to Los Angeles, MCA Records in Los Angeles. And I was I was there until they they closed down mca records in los angeles and they moved me back to another universal label uh lost highway records in nashville for the early 2000s yeah. and uh, and then i completed my original record deal with my my 2012 album release me uh and uh, and i'm a my next album my, my next album since t- 2012 will be on verve records uh, another universal label but a completely new record well, deal right verve records uh, and it'll come out we, it, we've we've been waiting to finish it because of the pandemic
0: and uh it'll it'll come out uh, uh we hope uh, first quarter of next year does it take a long time for you to put an album together sometimes you've worked on them for like years right well it's it's the uh you know it's ha-
1: having the having songs that you're that you want to play with people or, or or play for people that that you that you want to ask them to listen to is so thats the hard part. Writing is, you know, to have songs that are worth, worth recording and and uh, you know worth worth tapping somebody on the shoulder and saying, hey, listen to this. Uh, you know, that's you, you got to make sure you're ready for that. And and uh, I, I I Guy Clark is one of my songwriting heroes and was a tremendous help to me when I first started going to Nashville in 1984. And, and uh, I was always eager for that next Guy Clark album. And I, I remember just after first meeting him in person, I, I asked him, I said, well, well, guys, so when's your next record? When, what, do you, what do you have planned? And and, he's, and, and uh, I said, when are you going to do it? He said, well, whenever I get 10, 10 new songs I like, was his answer. And I thought, you know,
0: that's, that's, that's the important part. Do you like touring as much as you do writing? And recording, do you enjoy being on the road? I, I do
1: enjoy being on the road. I enjoy pl- playing, playing live. That you, you just said it. There, there are so many different facets to playing music, from, from being alone, sitting on the end of your bed, making up a song, to going into a recording studio and, and playing it for all the musicians there and to see what, they, what great musicians bring to your simple ideas, and, and then to, you know, to rent a tour bus and stepping on with all your buddies and bandmates and going on the road. They're, they're one thing that I, I, I particularly enjoy, and, and I'm, I would imagine your life is, is similar, is that it, it's rare when two days in a row are the same. Right. And there's such a great variety of activity and, and such, a, such a wonderful variety of people that you get to meet and talk to. I mean, if you like people at all, uh, doing doing something in the public eye and getting to to meet people you admire, like like getting to sit here right here with you, is just a, I mean it's something that most folks don't get a chance to do, and and I I just value that. The gosh the the record the legendary record producers that I've gotten to meet and the legendary musicians I've gotten to meet and work with, uh, it's you know it's it's more than I could have imagined when I was 18 years old at playing at that restaurant, The Mariner, on FM 1960.
0: Right. And when you're on tour and, you know, sometimes you have played for intimate crowds like you're talking about in Houston, you've played for massive, huge crowds, and you have that unique ability to connect, whether it's a small crowd or a massive crowd. Do you feel it? On stage, or are you playing that song for you and for the large band, as you say? What's your feeling while it's happening? Do you connect with those folks, or are they just out there?
1: It, you know, it, it's amazing to me uh, the relationship that you that you do feel with the audience on stage, and, I, and I'm sure. Uh, with all the live audiences you've 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 stood in front of yourself that i mean the audience actually has an impact on how the show uh will go from from night to night from for me i mean you can you can feel the energy of an audience before you before you play a note just just walking out on stage you can you get an idea of what the audience is like and and that it's 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 much more of an even if if nobody in the audience says, says a word to you, which I actually always enjoy when people speak up, but, but if no one were to say a word in the whole show, it's still an interactive experience. You, know, you still feel that you feel where the crowd is, is uh, you know, or how the crowd is thinking in a collective way. It, it's a, it, it definitely becomes a conversation of sorts and and uh, and which is one thing that i i value about a live performance because if you're if you're if you're going down one path and and you feel like well this isn't working so well you know you you can you can change you can you can uh, you can just decide to play something else or go in a different direction and and sometimes that's really necessary to do to, to make a performance work as well as it can
0: yeah now one of the things that i've noticed about you Every time I've seen you on stage, and a lot of headliners do this, but nobody, and I mean nobody does it like you, and I'm talking about the time that you take to acknowledge and spotlight the members of the band. There's no end to the time that you'll spend introducing, spotlighting, and it's obvious to me that they feel the freedom to do different things during the sets. You just let people go. I mean, it's what's your thinking about that? You know, I,
1: I first of all really enjoy the people I work with and and admire their skills. I mean, it, you know, I, nobody, no, nobody's going to hire me to play guitar in 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 their band, and and so I I make it a point to to be the worst musician in in my band and so I've over the years I've gotten to work with so many talented people one of the things that I enjoy is standing in the middle of them and and listening to them and so it, it's important to me that musicians have fun every night I mean the music playing music is a, is a joyful experience and and so so our arrangements are structured in a way but that, that allows for improvisation every night. I don't ask uh, the, the musicians in the band to necessarily play the same solo note for note or the same solo that happens to be on the recording. Uh, I enjoy hearing, you know, it, music can be a conversation among people in the band. And I, I hear, uh, I, I enjoy standing in the middle of that. A simple way to say it is, if when you hire really talented, smart people to do something, don't don't limit them with your own thinking, is, is kind of my, my thought. I, I don't want to get in their way of doing something better than I could have imagined.
0: Yeah, well, you're very generous with all of these musicians that are around you. And you're right. I mean, it's smart. I've always tried to surround myself with really smart people that make me look better when they shine, but you really are generous with these people, and you can tell that they know it, appreciate it, and love to work with you. You can see it on stage. It's really clear that there's a connection among you guys up there
1: that's that's really kind of you just to say it it you know playing together you know sort of being in the game together when you're when you're relying and I know you grew up you grew up playing football I do. you you rely on one another i mean there's there's a feeling in that huddle uh that that uh, binds you together always and and that's what being on stage with musicians uh, is like and that's what you know that and uh, my my favorite part of the day uh, uh, as much as I enjoy the shows but as we all kind of wind down and we're we're driving down the road riding down the road on the bus headed to the next city uh, is we will all have a snack after after the show and and sit around and talk about what went right and what went wrong or what we could do better and and uh, everybody's every everybody usually tells on himself and you know and and we all try to to lift one another up in in terms of getting over mistakes and uh to to have that sort of debrief after each show is is just one of my favorite parts of the day and uh, and slowly you see see guys will start peeling off and going back to their bunk one by one and then all of a sudden you realize you're you're sitting up there by yourself with the bus driver yeah, exactly. and uh, and it's a you know that's a that's a great part of the day
0: yeah when you have a song that gets featured as prominently as you had a song in a big blockbuster movie like the firm, what do you say to yourself about that?
1: You are so nice to bring that up. Sidney Pollock directed the firm right and and I sought him him out i I called my agent i said i please put me in touch with Sidney Pollock. I want to thank him he sydney pollock played my song m-o-n-e-y in a scene where he most of the time if you have a song in a movie it's you can barely hear it or right. you can it's turned way down he he turned my song up he turned it up because it was it was designed to mask a listening device to, to, so that the main characters tom cruise and gene Triplehorn could could have a conversation and not right. be not be not have the bug the, the their conversation bugged to drown out the the, the bug. Anyway, I, I I sent him a note. I said, no no directors ever turn a song up. You know, God bless you. Thank you. And 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 years later, I got to meet him, and he said, we'll do it again. And and he and he did it. he did do it again. So
0: yeah, that had to be interesting when you saw that for the first time because, like you say, it was not background. This was not elevator music. It became a character in the movie. It was. I was thrilled. I just had no idea. I mean,
1: it's thrilling enough to to know that that somebody that a director like Sidney Pollock wants to use your song, but I just never expected to have it be featured so so prominently. I, I did a recording session years ago with with Don Was producing, and a wonderful guitar play, player from uh, Los Angeles named Mark Goldenberg played played guitar, and we were recording this. It was a song, my song, "You Can't Resist It." For uh, for a film uh, in that session, but the, all the guys in the band were were joking. Mark Goldenberg said, "Yeah, yeah." The first time I had a had a song in a movie, he said I was so excited. He said the scene was it was a shot of a clock radio on a nightstand. My song came on the radio, and a and an arm reached in and turned off the radio as soon as it came <laughs> on.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was not exactly how they did yours, so it was very different. So you've had your songs in movies, but then you've been in movies as well. And you have worked with a really iconic director, Robert Altman. What's it like to work with someone like that? You've got to learn things from him because you seem really private and you seem really laid back. And then to step up into a movie role would seem like a real stretch for you.
1: Well, it's, and I'm not sure I'm very good at it, but I but I I'm never one to question good fortune. And it was such an opportunity to work with Robert Altman and, and my my aspiring at uh, my my aspirations as an actor uh, really were were just because of him. He he came to a show we did uh, in 1990 at the Greek theater and and uh, just called me up afterwards. And he and I, I was standing in my kitchen and the phone rang. And he, he, I'll never forget the conversation. He said, hi, this is Bob Altman. I said, this is he, he said, would you, so you want to be in a movie just like that? You want to be in a movie? And I said, well, yes, sir. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he said, he said, good. He said, I, I, I'm about to do one. He was, he was working on uh, uh, the film that turned out to be shortcuts at the time. And then, and then the player came, came in before that. So, uh, uh, so he asked me to be in the player but it was shortcuts that he had called about but he he said he he I, I i said well what should i do to prepare should i take should i take ask acting lessons or what should i do and he said oh heavens no they'll just mess you up he said just come out here and so i did i went and met with him and he was he was a wonderful teacher uh, uh, as you said he was a great teacher and what i learned most from him was he was it was was how important confidence is and how important it is to believe in, in your own approach. He, he was confident uh, in that way that, well, it just it permeated the entire cast and crew. He, he was, you know, some some directors on films. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't begin to get near their their station with their with their monitor and their their little camp on on set. I mean, you just wouldn't wouldn't walk over to him. And if you got anywhere close to Altman. He he he'd say he'd say come on come over here. He he knew he knew you wanted to look over his shoulder and he would just say come on come on over and he'd put his arm around you and you he'd let you he'd pull you right into his his monitor and let you watch he'd let you do as much as you wanted to do. Really. And and every every day at the end of at the end of the shoot days uh, for dailies he wanted everybody in the cast and crew to be there. And he would sit in the back of the screening room and he'd watch everybody watch every take of every scene. And he wouldn't say a word. He would just watch and there'd be refreshments for everybody. E- every, at the end of every day, it was like a, a party. I, I went to dailies the, the first days I worked and then I didn't work for a couple of days on the player. So I didn't go to dailies. And the next time I was on set, he walked over to me very discreetly. I mean, he never embarrassed you in front of anybody, but very discreetly. He said, "Where were you?" And I thought, uh "Oh, what? Where was I? What do you mean? Where was I?" And, and he said, "Dailies. Where were you?" And I said, "Well, I, I, I you know, I wasn't in the." I, he said, "Come to Dailies. In other words, come to Dailies, whether you're in the scenes or not. Come, be a well, part of this movie." And that's the way he was. He was so inclusive, and it all came from a place of confidence. I, I would see him walk into the middle for, for me. You know, Altman had a reputation of uh, for. Letting actors sort of be free and improvise dialogue, and you know, kind of go off script. He he had a real you know reputation for for encouraging that. In fact, my take on Altman is that he was a first of all he was a great judge of character, and he knew who to do that with and who not to do that with. And in my case, he would walk out. I'd be on set ready to you know, I'd have my lines in my head. I'd be ready to do the scene, and he would walk out on set. And just, just very quietly whisper a direction in my ear. Uh, do such and such, or when you look this way, do this. And I would do that, and it would that would be the take. He 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 knew who to give direction to and how to how to talk to people. He he was just a just a, an astute d- judge of character, and 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 all his films are about stripping away pretense and getting to the heart of. Someone's motivation, you know, getting to the real person behind whatever pretense he might construct for his life. You know, it, it, his his style it was that direct Kansas City way of speaking, right. and uh, you know, not at all unlike what you do, Doctor Phil.
0: Would you do movies again? Is this something that you like to do on a regular basis? I do. I do.
1: I you know, I work. I mean, the main way I make a living is playing music and so i don't have a lot of gaps in my schedule and i don't really pursue acting work but i do enjoy it and uh i would yeah i would i'd love to do more of it i i uh you know it's uh for me it's a chance to to be in the band you know and not not have to not have the responsibility of 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 running the band it's uh you know a chance to look into someone else's uh creative process you know as collaborative as music is making a film is that much more collaborative it requires so many people to to make a film and there's just a no end to f- interesting things that happen on a set in in my opinion
0: yeah it's certainly collaborative there's no doubt about that one log won't burn so you got to have everybody else to work <laughs> off of so how is all of this that you've done being on tour and being in the entertainment business how do you think that's affected your personal life and your relationships?
1: Well, that's that's a really good question. I, I, uh, you know, I'm a little late to the game. I mean, as you as you pointed out, uh, you know, I, I, I did start playing music when I was eighteen, but my first record didn't come out until nineteen. That was in nineteen seventy-six when I was eighteen. My first record came out in nineteen eighty-six when I was twenty-eight, and I thought to myself then, I thought, well, I'm way too old. This 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 will never work. I mean, I'm glad I have. I'm glad to have a chance to make a record, but but this is probably going to be it because I'm way too old. Um, I had my uh, first children when I was 59 years old, and and uh, so I became I became a dad uh, not quite four years ago. Uh, Twins, a boy and a girl, and uh, you know, in in a way, this this uh, during the during the pandemic, being being home solid for more than a year has been one of the just richest years of my of my life my wife and i've been married a a shorter time than we've been together but but uh it, it was because of music that i met her and and uh so i you know you never know how things would turn out if you had done something else but i am uh grateful i'm grateful for the way this worked out and i'm so grateful to have a have a chance to be a to find out what being a dad is all about, even, even, at, even at the age of a granddad, you know.
0: Yeah, what a great time in children's lives to be able to shape those personalities and shape those relationships. You know, people always say that kids grow up so fast, you've had that opportunity to really be there and spend that time with them.
1: Well, it is, and it is, it is true. I can't believe how quickly the last four years have, have gone. Uh, my my parents both worked, as I said, and and uh, they would leave home to beat traffic into Houston at five thirty or six in the morning, and they'd get home every evening about six thirty. And and I'd spend every day after school with one of my relatives, my grandparents or my aunts and uncles, who all who all lived within walking distance uh, of our of our house. And, and uh, so I had a wonderful support system to grow up with. And, and my parents, when they were off work, because they were gone half of the day, every day, when they weren't at work, they never did anything without me. I can, I can count on one hand the number of times that I might have had to stay with my, my grandparents when they went out for the evening. They just didn't do that uh, on a regular basis. And, and uh, we just did everything together as a family. Since our children were born, I've been flying home on days off uh, when I'm on tour. But, but in general, I'm home more than I'm on tour anyway. So I, I, uh, when, I've, when I'm home, I'm really home and really get to be with them. This last year of getting to be with them every day is just something I would never have anticipated. And, and because it's the pandemic, we, we haven't had any, any folks helping us. It's just been my wife, April, and me and the two of them. And uh, it's two on two is definitely outnumbered,
0: by the way. Oh, of course,
1: (laughs) but but it's uh, it's just been fun from morning to night.
0: You know, you were married for a short time to Julia Roberts, and this was in the 90s. Were you a lot more prepared to be married this time around? Uh, (laughs) you know, that that's a that's a good question. I, I uh,
1: April is younger than I am and, and, uh, 17 years younger than I am. And, and, uh, when we first met, she was 21 years old and I tried to reassure her by telling her I may be older, but I'm very immature. <laughs> and, and so I, I think, uh, I think that's that, uh, she's ahead of me still in, in the maturity factor, but, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, being married and, 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 uh, being, I tell you, this, this having children thing, I know people have talked about it before, but it's a big deal. And, 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 and it's for, for me, I, I, you know, I feel, uh, I, I, you know, I I feel a little ignorant really uh, at, at, uh, uh, I mean, it's the kind of thing that you just have to experience to, to get it. And, and I remember my dad used to tell me, one day you'll understand. And my, I lost my dad in 1999. And, and uh, which also seems like just a couple of days ago. But but and my dad and I were very close, but uh, he would uh, he he'd tell me one day you'll understand. And I think about those words, you know, every time that I I get to pick up one of my children. And and uh, uh, that's uh, I'm, I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that April Stuck with me long enough to give me that chance, you know.
0: Yeah, of course. And you know, you got married before after just knowing someone three weeks, and you've known April how many years before y'all got married? I'm not great
1: with simple arithmetic, but yes, that's right, a long time.
0: Long yeah. time. <laughs> that's and right. clearly, you've got you know these two children, and you had what I think you would have to describe as an idyllic childhood. And it sounds like you're giving your children exactly that same upbringing in terms of their exposure and growing up in this wonderful environment where the outdoors is there, the parents are there, everything is there. What's your hope for your children, particularly in this day and time? Because things are changing so much. Social media is becoming so prominent and we're seeing the world change so fast. Do you worry ab- about what their world is going to be like when they get up to adult life? You know, you do you do think about that.
1: But uh, it's what you said, you know, if you can give them the sort of foundation, give them the tools to I mean they're going to have to figure it out on their own. I I was struck from the very first day uh with how much of their survival is up to them. You know, how much do they want to eat? How much do they how much do they want to make it? I mean, they that that a lot of that comes from just from them and, and uh, they'll they'll have to figure all that out and, and uh, how to navigate the modern world, whatever it becomes. And, and uh, if you can give them a foundation of uh, yeah, if you can you can have them give them some confidence in themselves and their ability to figure things out. Uh, that's the that's the best you can hope for I think I I I never thought about my own age until they were born and uh, I I wish I would would have you know my my mom is 91 and I'm 63 and I've had my mom all these years I'm so grateful for that and I know that that won't be the case for them and and uh I just hope that uh, I, can, I can be enough of a presence now in their lives to, to help them later as they, they think back about, about, about everything.
0: Well, these are very formative years. And people ask me so much, I get asked so often, you know, Dr. Phil, if you could say what's the most important value that you could convey to kids in this world, in this day and time? You know, it hasn't changed from the answer I would have given 20 or 30 years ago, because they say you know they're worried about drugs and they're worried about you know all the different temptations and them growing up so fast. And you know, my answer was then and is now: if you can teach children to value themselves, to have self-worth and to value themselves, they'll carry that forward into life. Because I mean, it's like having a young daughter. If she values herself, she won't let some boy take advantage of her because she'll say, look, you're not going to use me for a playground. I value myself too much for that. And if her daddy treats her with dignity and respect, the first boy she meets that blows in her ear and tells her she's special, she's going to say, yeah, I know. Uh, My dad's been telling me that for 20 years. I don't need you to tell me that. I know that. I've learned that. I just think it's so important to teach children to value themselves and know what their worth is because then they treat themselves with dignity and respect and they don't get sucked into all the rest of this and you know it's so clear to me that's what your parents did with you and I can see you're doing it already with your children.
1: Well, it, you know, uh, that I I could I couldn't agree with you more and and uh, but give it a few years no telling how to go. We might have to come on your show to get you to straighten us all out.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing probably not, but I would certainly be happy to come down there and have some chicken fried steak with you and let you <laughs> tell me whatever you needed to.
1: We have plenty of that, but, you know. That, but that's one of the things that I've I've long admired about you is is your how important family is to you and how you how you talk about that uh, in, in a way that inspires folks and and the fact that you get to get to work with one of your sons and and uh, and that and that you've encouraged one of your sons. Despite probably better judgment to go into the music business i mean that's 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 being a great dad
0: well, you know it's interesting Robin and I've been married for forty four years we've been together almost fifty and you know so our boys have grown up you know seeing their parents together every day and I get to talk to my boys pretty much every day either on the phone or we might see each other and You know, one of them is very business-oriented, Jay, and as you say, Jordan is the musician, and he's just finished a 100-city tour opening for the Jonas Brothers around the United States and Europe, and was just on James Corden a few weeks ago with a new song, and it's so fun to watch him do what he's doing, and I love music so much, I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, but I love it. I am just a music junkie, which is why I've been such a fan of yours. And to watch him as he does something new each time, and he writes his own songs and with others, but he, he writes his own songs. And it's just so great to see that creative part of him come out and the joy and the passion in his life. It's just, you know, if your kids can be excited about something they're doing you just feel good about what's happening with it. I just hate to see one of my kids not be excited about their lives. That would just be the worst thing ever.
1: It, 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 there's not a more joyful feeling. I, I get excited when uh, I, I get excited when my little ones uh, find a, a soft spot in the dirt that they realize they can fill up their bucket. Exactly. Whatever it is, I, it's, it, it, there's not a better feeling than watching them take hold of something. Even if that bucket ends up getting dumped uh, on his sister, exactly, <laughs> or, or vice versa, there's there's a real there's a real joy in that.
0: Yeah, and it's great they have each other and will all their lives. My wife is a twin, and my son Jay married a triplet, and I had triplet mm-hmm. aunts and uncles, and they were all through our family. We thought when Jay's wife got pregnant, we thought, oh my God, they're going to have a litter because we had it on both sides of our family. Unfortunately, they didn't. Oh my goodness. But it's so great when you've got brothers and sisters that you grow up with. So I know they love it down there. It's just got to be so much joy for you to watch them play together.
1: Well, it really is. And and uh, I've thought that a million times during the pandemic, because we we really have been, uh, I know everyone has sort of a different version of being careful, but but uh, we, we just haven't been out much. We haven't been to a restaurant and uh, we haven't hugged my mom yet, which we need to need to do. I think now that we're all vaccinated, but but um, uh, we we've just been very careful, and they've only had they've only had each other to play with. So I'm grateful for that.
0: That's good. Well, you say you have this new album coming out in the first quarter of next year. What else is in the future for Lyle Lovett? What's your plan moving forward? You're going to raise these kids, that's for sure. What else have you got cooking?
1: Well, you know, I I'm I couldn't be happier if that if that were all I I got to do, I'd be happy staying home and doing that. But I I somehow or another can't help but think of things that rhyme and and uh, wanting to play my guitar and and make things up. So uh, if, as long as I can keep writing songs, as long as I can keep enough people showing up to uh, to to allow me to record those songs and keep playing, I'll I'll keep doing that because I. I love doing that, and and uh, you know wh- whether or not my children ever want to do that. I mean, I as if I if I happen to walk around the house and and sing something, I I often hear from them, "Dad, don't sing, don't don't sing."
0: Yeah, you just. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, they they prefer to sing in the house, and and I'm just fine with that. But I, I still love to perform and I love to 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 write. And, and I love to, you know, I love to there, there's a there's just such a camaraderie among the people you work with, among the musicians you work with, and to be able to get in the recording studio with them. That we we recorded the tracks for this this album in November of 2019 in Nashville, uh, and and haven't been able to work on them since. Uh, things are are getting safe enough that we might be able to finish the record, but it's basically done with just a few. We have to mix it and do a few overdubs, uh, background vocals and those sorts of things. But, but uh, I was in Nashville, and you and your family, you were on the uh, Kelly Clarkson show, really? I remember. And, and our, our, uh, our we, we started about 11 in the morning, so I was able to watch her show every morning. And that, that was just such a delightful interview to, to see you as a guest on someone else's show. <laughs> yeah, Kelly's a lot of fun. She was really fun. Yes. I, I don't, I've never met her and I haven't done her show, but, but, uh, that episode really stood out to me that week as, as, uh, as we were, I was getting ready to go and work in the studio.
0: Well, you're, you're kind to say that. I hope you're going to keep doing these live streams that you just started doing recently, because I think people really enjoy seeing that side of you. And I think that's a lot of fun.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks for, for even being aware of them that the, the, uh, I've I've done twelve of them now, uh, about one a month since starting uh, last May, and and I just call up my uh, people that uh, that I'm friendly enough with that can't turn me down to to be to be my guest, and and uh, and so we have a good time talking like that, uh, like like the way we are really, and and uh, trading songs, uh, just playing and singing. I'll do uh, I'll do a show in in a couple of weeks with a with a young blues artist named Marcus King, who I met in Nashville a couple of years ago. He's 24 years old and uh, charming and talented as they come. I'm excited about that.
0: Well, I seriously doubt you get a lot of no's when you call up somebody and ask them to spend time doing that with Lyle Lovett. I guess you don't get a lot of no's. Now, I have to ask you a selfish question because I do have a young musician, Jordan, but what's your advice for young musicians starting out today it's a different day and time but you say it was hard to get started back then and it is now what's your advice to young musicians these days
1: you know i i i'm not great at giving advice but but if if i if i were if somebody pressed me on because there there really are you know one, one of the things my mom always told me growing up was there are many correct ways to do something and so there's not just one way to do it uh and, and so I, I preface any any kind of advice with with that. Uh, but but uh, I, I do encourage young, especially people who write people that that come from that sort of creative place to to just to be themselves, you know, to to write things that that mean something to them. Uh, don't try to anticipate the audience, uh, what the audience might want. Uh, do do things that that mean something to them and then and then uh, if they do that it'll it'll translate you know if if they if if a person if a writer can relate to what he's writing as as true it'll ring true for other people and and uh, I I I just I've been fortunate to I've always been allowed to be myself uh, in in the business I've never sort of sort of had to pretend to be you know more charming than i am or better looking than i am or taller than i am i just walk out on stage i get to be myself right. and and uh i think some performers uh you know over the years you, you who do assume a character or an on-stage persona and who are successful with that sometimes get locked into a a character that's not really them so i i feel blessed that my audience, the, the people that come to see me and support my music, uh, seem like people that I'd enjoy sitting down and having a cup of coffee with after the show. Yeah. Uh, they're they're uh, you know they, they when you get to be yourself, uh, there's not much better uh, in the world than that.
0: Yeah. yeah, you know the thing that you said today that resonated most with me, and boy, it just stuck out like it was in big flashing lights. You said that the songs that you feel good about are those that when you're performing them you feel comfortable doing it and that that song you don't feel conspicuous you feel comfortable being in front of people doing that song and i was so glad to hear you say that because there are times when i've been in a situation where i've done a show or a topic and it just didn't feel right and I've walked off that stage and said, bury that, burn it. I don't ever want to see that air. It just didn't feel right. And then there are others when I walk out there and it just feels right. It just it feels right. It feels like I should be doing this. It feels like it needs to be done. I feel in my lane. It's in my wheelhouse. I should be doing this. And boy, the difference, it's day and night between the two. I knew exactly what you meant the second you said that. And I was so glad to hear you say that. Well, it is reassuring to hear you say that, to to know that you as accomplished
1: a performer as you are, and as many times as you've been on stage with that red light on, if you, if you feel that way, that's, that's very reassuring to somebody like me. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it, it's when things are going, when things are going wrong, sometimes there's nothing you can do to I've been in the middle of shows before where I just thought, okay, well, forget it. (laughs) For
0: <laughs> yeah but you gotta finish <laughs> you know you well you do that's
1: right i you know I, I i rely on sports analogies a lot you know if i if i make a flub on my guitar i i think of myself as a wide receiver who just dropped a pass that just just went through his fingers and and if, if it's one of those shows that you just can't quite ever get out of your own way i think well i i think I've, i lost this game but i gotta gotta we've got another one tomorrow
0: Yeah. You know, and it's funny you say that. I was playing football at the University of Tulsa as a freshman, and we got beat by OU 77 to 7. And I think the headline was, OU Extra Points Enough to Beat Tulsa. (laughs) If they just counted their extra points, it was enough to beat us. And I remember the coaches saying, you know, boys, football teaches you about life. And I thought, bullshit, teaches you about football. It doesn't teach you about life. But once I got through playing the game and looked back, I realized how right they were because there were so many times that you know we would be down, we would be out, we would think it was over. And next thing you know, something happens, then the clock stops and something else happens. And before you know it, you just don't give up. You know, you wind up surviving, sometimes even winning, but I think athletics are so important and I've learned so much from that. So when you talk about sports analogies, that really resonates with me. It's taught me a lot about hanging in there, never giving up and just being able to walk off and say, you know what? I did the best I could and that's, I didn't leave anything out there. So I'm okay with whatever happened. So (laughs) that's right. That's right. Yeah. We're just a couple of country boys. I think we're doing okay. (laughs) <laughs> we're eating regular that's all we can that's all we you know, can say I, right
1: well i i just have I have such admiration for your career and how you I, you you i mean just the whole amarillo beef trial all, all that i mean they still talk about that in amarillo oh yeah and, and it was your it was your idea to to move her show there and and tape the show from there as well, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was. I thought it was a smart thing to do, and she was very gracious to listen and say, "Absolutely, we'll do it."
1: Well, and she just won over the entire community,
0: and needed to do it <laughs> and needed to win them over. We were behind enemy lines,
1: <laughs> but it was a it was a, a brilliant idea. I mean, the the, the idea that uh, you know that you can that you see a need. And you know how to fill it. I mean, that that's that's a real gift, Doctor Phil, and you've been doing that your your whole career, and 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 your all of your television shows. It, it you know, the, the And I don't, I'm not. I don't mean to put you on the spot, and and uh, and feel free to edit this out. But if I were talking to you, I I, I mean, I'm really curious. If I were interviewing you, I, I'm I'm really curious about your your Doctor on Demand. And, I mean, that's got to be something that's really important to folks, folks that might not have access to doctors, folks that, that are, or don't want to go to an actual doctor, uh, a, a physical doctor's office for one reason or another.
0: Well, it really is, and, you know, particularly that company, it was my son Jay's idea to start, and we really got behind it, and it was just doing terrific. And then when the pandemic hit, things went up like 7,000% because then for sure nobody wanted to go sit in a waiting room full of sick people. And we tried to make so many things free of charge to those that just didn't have the ability to get the care that they needed. And one of the things we've really developed is the mental health side of it, because people don't realize, but 48% of rural communities don't have a psychologist or psychiatrist available to them, and almost 70% of them don't even have a psychiatric nurse available to them. There's just no health care providers available for rural communities in particular. So the ability to get in front of your desktop or laptop or even your mobile device and Click, and you're in front of a board-certified, licensed therapist that can talk to you with dealing with loneliness, anxiety, depression, or whatever. I think really makes a difference for people that otherwise would just be lost. And so, I'm really proud that he's been able to get that into the delivery system so much. So, I'm I hope it's going to continue to make a difference. Well,
1: I think it already has made a difference. And and uh, what a wonderful thing to be able to work that closely with your son.
0: Yeah, it's been great working with both of them. And I've studied enough about the business side of the music business to have an excuse to talk to Jordan on a regular basis, because he sure doesn't call me to say, how does this sound? How does that sound? So at least I can kind of talk to him about the business side. But we have a lot of fun, and he's just had a new baby. And so I've now got three grandkids, and it's just nothing but joy. I just couldn't be more excited about it.
1: Vince Gill has been a friend of mine for years, and did one of my shows, uh, uh, on, no, online no. shows. Uh, Vin, I met Vince through our mutual producer Tony Brown back in my early days at MCA, and and uh, we were. It's been a couple of years ago now that uh, uh, they uh, taped the uh, birthday birthday TV special uh, hosted by or for for Willie Nelson in Nashville. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, uh, I, I got invited to be a part of that and was, you know, you show up there at the, at the arena and, and, uh, go to your dressing room. And, and there I was sharing a dressing room with, with Vince and Rodney Crowell and Ray Benson from Asleep at the wheel. So that was really, really fun. But I walked in and Vince, Vince was sitting there and we had done some dates together. And he, he said to me, he said, well how, how them babies like that? I said, well, they're doing great. They're doing great. He said, well, I just had, just had a grandbaby. He said, you want, you want to know why it's better? And I thought he was going to say what most fe- folks say is you get to enjoy them and then send them back. But that's not what he said. He, and, and this is such a, a Vinskill thing to say. But he said, he said, you know, it's better because it's the first time you get to see your child realize how much you loved him.
0: Yeah. And well, I just thought, whoa. Yeah, really, really true. You know, I always tell parents, you're not raising children, you're raising adults. Mm -hmm. And you see it come to fruition. And Jordan was just on a trip with Joe and Nick Jonas to play golf. And after two days, he called and said, you've got to get me home. I can't be away from his daughter's name is Roe And he said, I can't be away from her another day. I've got to get back home. And I thought, what a wonderful thing to hear your son say about his new baby. That really is. And I, I know the feeling completely. I, uh,
1: on, I have missed three days off when I've been on tour since they, they were born, uh, in June of 2017, uh, getting to come home just because it's logistically impossible. But, yeah. uh, every other day I get the bus to, to drop me off at the nearest nonstop airport and, and, uh, just zip, zip home even for a few hours. And, and, uh, that I, I know it meant more to me than it did to them at the time when they were little, little, but, but uh, it, uh, it sure meant a lot to me to be able to do oh,
0: that. It. it's so important. I realize sometimes I've flown from New York to Dallas to be at a basketball game and turned around and flew back after the basketball game. And it didn't matter so much that I was there, but it would have mattered a whole lot if I hadn't been. I, you I, know? Yeah. And that's the difference sometimes. You think, well, it didn't seem to make that much difference to them that I was there. But if that seat had been empty when they looked up there, could make all the difference in the world.
1: I will take that to heart. That's 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 great advice. You're, that positive spirit of yours and that, you know, that appreciation for what you get out of everything you do just comes through every time you step on stage and it's uplifting every time and you just make it look so easy and I know it's not as easy as you make it look, but it's just you're just wonderful at your job. And we, I just want you to know how, how all of us out there watching uh, appreciate you and love you.
0: Well, you're very kind to say that. I'm going to keep doing it. And do not be surprised if sometime soon, in Klein, you hear a knock on the door and I'm standing there saying hi. <laughs> Come on over. I'll, I'll get down there and see you when I can and hope we do get together personally very soon.
1: We'll crank up the old husky and go ride around the
0: pasture. Listen, you'd strap me on. I'll be there. Lyle, <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking this time.
1: Thanks for your time, Dr. Phil. I appreciate I will, you having me.
0: We'll talk again soon. So long. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.